everyone's always talked about the light side of working remote and the promise of you get the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how you want. But no one really talked about the dark side of loneliness and isolation, uh, but it was revealed in the study. And, and actually, we found that if you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long-term career at your company because of the loneliness and isolation. And that connects to a lot of the prior research from Gallup and, and the study about vital friends. Having friends or, or connections and relationships in the organization, it's an anchor into the company. There's less reason for you to leave because you have those stronger bonds. It's like leaving a family. And so my conclusion over like 12 years is the best corporate culture is the one that feels like a family. That's Dan Chappelle, an expert in working from home and the author of Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens. This week, I read an article in The Atlantic titled, The Coronavirus is Creating a Huge Stressful Experiment in Working from Home. If you've been working from home, and I have been, that headline says it all. While the percentage of the labor force that works from home has tripled over the past 15 years, it only stands at around 4% of the population, according to the Chicago Tribune. And while over 40% of us work from home sometimes, maybe a day or two a month, becoming fully remote is a whole other ball game. Now, the piece I mentioned in The Atlantic cited a 2016 paper called Does Working From Home Work?, in which a team of economists looked at C-Trip, a 16,000-employee Chinese travel agency that randomly assigned a small group of its call center staff to work from home. Initial results were great. People worked more, quit less, and said they were happier. But when C-Trip rolled out the policy to its entire workforce, it led to one major complaint. Loneliness. My guest today, Dan Bell, is an expert on remote working and the author of Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. Now, the insane thing is I interviewed Dan before COVID hit the U.S. And to be honest, neither of us knew what was about to happen. Frankly, when I thought about having Dan on the show, I was super interested in the book, but I wondered if people would even want to talk about remote working. Well, a lot has changed. And that's why I invited him back on the show. So in this week's faux moment of the show, he and I connected remotely to discuss what he's learned in the age of coronavirus. You will not want to miss that. But first, let's get to the interview. I started out by asking Dan, what was it about his own experiences that convinced him to write a book about loneliness in a time when we are constantly connected by technology? Did you ever read that New York um, Magazine article about loneliness and it has pictures of people being lonely within the city? Yes, totally. That's exactly how I felt. When I first moved here five years ago, I thought it would be very easy to meet people. I'm like, oh, wow, there's... 1.6 million people just in Manhattan and then 8.6 in overall New York. And I'd be on the subway. I'd be walking the streets. I'd be in WeWorks. I'd be everywhere. And everyone was in their own bubble. So I felt like everyone was around me, but not around me at the same time. People were physically there, but not mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. And A lot of it is because people were looking down at a screen instead of directly at another person. 
And I would just, you know, be in a subway, sit down, and, you know, I'd be the only one not using technology. And that really hit me. Think about this. You, know, you have this quote. You said, technology has created the illusion that workers are connected when in reality they feel isolated, lonely, disengaged, and less committed to their organizations when overusing or misusing that technology. So I guess as we think about it, we go online more and more, we're more connected, but yet we're more lonely. Like what? It's such a paradox. What is happening there? Yeah. A good example is there's a study of people with 150 Facebook friends. So if you have 150 Facebook friends, you can only rely on four at a time of an emotional crisis. So like, let's say you're really sick and you're in the hospital with coronavirus. You can only rely on four of 150 people you're connected to on Facebook to at least call you and say, are you okay? Wow. So it, technology deceives us into thinking we have an abundance of opportunities or abundance of connections when in reality, we don't. We, we have connections instead of relationships. But what we want is relationships. So our behavior is, is not getting us to what we actually want. And I think that it's technology's fault, like the, the companies who are developing the technology, and it's our fault too. Like we can be much more intentional about how, when, and where we're using technology and spending our time, but also technology companies like the Googles, the Apples, uh, Amazons, they want you to be addicted to their technology. So addiction is built into the business model and we are the product. But let me ask you a question on that. Okay, so let's take the example of Facebook. So we do know these people. It's not like I've never heard of my, my Facebook friends. It's not like I'm that desperate. You know, I, I like, you know, some of these people I grew up with or I went to college with. But why do you think that number's so low? People don't put a lot of effort into relationships anymore. It's like the convenience factor. It's like, oh, if I send a text message, that kind of takes care of that relationship instead of actually putting in the time to get on the subway and, and travel for a half hour to meet someone and spend quality time with them. And like you can be lonely in the workplace too. You could be in a WeWork and it has the appearance of a community without the actual conversations and depth of those conversations that lead to relationships. And you can be in an office and most people now get lunch at their desk. So like you might be sitting a foot away from someone, but are you really going to go over to them and say, do you want to get lunch together? No, because you make this excuse, which is partially true. We live in a society of burnout and that you need to be at your desk. You need to be focused on work or you, you won't be able to finish it. Uh, you mentioned WeWork, and I think WeWork's an interesting case study for this because I was a WeWork member. I, you said you've been to a couple Twice, of WeWork. Twice, yeah. And so I joined WeWork. I was actually a member of the second WeWork in the history of the world, which was the one on wet, Little West 12th Street in New York City. And I and I joined it in 2011. So, like, I was early to the game. And I remember when I joined, I, I had been working sort of out of home and coffee shops. And so I was like, this is amazing. What a community. Oh, my goodness. And then over time, what happened was I actually began to – and I no, no offense, we work people. But, like, I started to feel like it was very – I don't know, like – lonely number one number two that there the attempts to create community were very um superficial like oh we're having a ice cream social well you know i i got work to do i don't really want to have ice cream every day at 11 or there was this sort of intranet that was sort of meant to be a lot of people said that link you know that we work was going to be the linkedin of the physical world and it was gonna and the reality is that that nobody used that app except to spam each other and try to sell them things and over time i just ended up realizing that 
it, it was not a community. And, and, and frankly, I didn't really care per se because I just wanted to get my work done. But I started to realize that like sort of the whole conceit of WeWork, that it was something more than real estate was, you know, and we've all seen how that played out now, was really a marketing job. And so I'm curious as you think about like co-working spaces and community and culture, like what could they do differently to achieve some of the things that would actually bring people back into a workplace where there isn't as much loneliness? I think that's a great question. And yeah, it creates the illusion that there's community when in reality people go there and if they're a solopreneur, they're just kind of in their own bubble. If they have a team, they just stay in their office. So they're not really there. And if they have an ice cream social, they're getting the ice cream and they're bringing back to the office, not trying to <laughs> communicate with other people. So I think that it's very difficult. And I think you can't fake cele- celebrations either. Like yeah. a lot of people are like, oh, let's, you know, have birthday parties for, you know, our teammates. And if it's forced, people aren't going to go or they'll make excuses. But if it's natural, if people trust each other, if they feel a sense of belonging, if there's some sort of uh, safety and security, psychological safety is big right now, then people will naturally want to do it, right? So there's a, it's a big difference between forcing the behaviors and it happening naturally. And the way to happen naturally is treat people with respect, you give them autonomy, you give them the core essence of what they need, not to just do their job, but to exist and connect with other people. What's really interesting uh, that, you know, in terms of research for the book is I partnered with Virgin Pulse and led a study of 2,000 managers, employees in 10 countries. And everyone's always talked about the light side of working remote and the promise of you get the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how you want. But no one really talked about the dark side of loneliness and isolation, uh, but it was revealed in the study. And, and actually, we found that if you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long-term career at your company because of the loneliness and isolation. And that connects to a lot of the prior research from Gallup and, and the study about vital friends. Having friends or, or connections and relationships in the organization, it's an anchor into the company. There's less reason for you to leave because you have those stronger bonds. It's like leaving a family. And so my conclusion over like 12 years is the best corporate culture is the one that feels like a family. So saying that, okay, you're you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, okay? I'm, I'm going to appoint you. I'm the board of directors. I'm very excited. Thank you for for for, for taking over the reins. And I'm and and, and you're coming in, and I and I ask you to make a remote working policy. Do you a allow remote working, and if so, b what policies do you put into place to make sure that you avoid loneliness and have a cohesive team and culture? Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to have a remote work policy at this point. You know, I've done so much work on flexibility over the course of the past seven plus years. And especially for young people, they value flexibility even over healthcare globally. Wow. And so I think flexibility is the standard. I think there's an expectation now that companies have it. People are making career and job choices based on it. Like they'd, they'd rather take a $5,000 or so you know, pay cut in order to work remote at least sometimes. So I think that remote work's important. I think that there's a lot of things you can do to empower remote workers, like in the book, I interviewed leaders and ones let remote workers run the meetings, so empowering them so that they felt like they were kind of there but not there. The second one that is gaining gaining a lot of traction in corporate America now is forcing people to do video conferences. Yeah. As in like you have to use video and that forces the behavior of like 
you know, not only taking your job seriously, otherwise you could just, you know, wear a t-shirt and like, you know, you know, mess around in your house. You're like there, you're present and you're seeing people. And that's kind of what's missing if you're just emailing or texting is you don't get the, the sensation of seeing people's emotions and hand gestures, et cetera. Um, the other thing is there are leaders that I interviewed that they work at really big companies and they have a travel budget every year. Uh, so like actually like flying to all the remote sites and meeting people in person because the biggest thing that's missing is trust when you're not physically with someone. There was a study by uh, Harvard and the University of Chicago that found negotiators that shake hands physically in person are seen as more trustworthy and get better outcomes than those who don't. So there's, there's something about the trust that's gained when you're physically with someone that can't be replaced. So I think that's important. I think that like, let's say you have a sales team or let's just a big organization. If everyone works remote, like full time, I think at minimum, there needs to be a few times a year where people come together and that investment is worth it. And I'll add something to what you said. I think it's all sensible. Frankly, companies, listen, if you're not paying for the real estate, these people are all working in their homes, then you know, take those savings. Don't just forget about the savings invest them in something. But there's another thing that I'll add to this that as somebody who, so I'm part of a venture capital fund in Peru. As some listeners know, I interviewed one of my partners last season. And so we've got one person in California. We got three people or five people in Lima, Peru. And we've got me here in New York. And so we have calls. Uh, we do video calls. But one thing that we've been trying to figure out and get better at is the quality of the interaction. So it's like they're sitting in Lima in an echoey conference room. You know, everybody was in their laptops. And we've got um, my other colleague who's in uh, his garage in Menlo because, you know, it's Silicon Valley. And I'm in my apartment in New York or I'm in my, my office in New York. And the sound is kind of lame. And so we've made some investments. Like we got this thing called the OWL, which allows you to do sort of virtual conferencing where the camera switch to whoever's talking. We're making these changes. But, you know, there has been a massive improvement. Of course, things like Zoom, you know, they're better than the things that we had five, 10 years ago. I mean, Skype isn't even that old. But truly good quality calls in terms of video and sound, they are really necessary because there's nothing worse than being on a group call where nobody can hear what's being said. And, And we do our calls in Spanish. So I have to, you know, obviously listen rather carefully. And when the sound isn't good, it just, I feel so disengaged. Right. So I'm, I'm pretty forward about saying guys, uh, we got to we got to get a better quality experience here so that everybody is engaged. It's and also about accountability too. Totally. If they're there if the videos on, they can't just go pet their dog the whole time and eat lunch like they, they have to be plugged in. I have to take a shower every time we have a call so that, you know it really forces me to uh, to look my best. To the bem, meus queridos fomo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese and as you know I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Speaking of that, Working from home, 
and anybody who's done it knows what I'm talking about. Lots of potential distractions. It's like, oh, let me just check out what's on the TV news. Oh, I'm going to clean my, you know, bedroom, do laundry, surf the web, obviously, things like that. Listen to an episode of Homo Sapiens or, or something like that. So how do you overcome the temptation to procrastinate by doing other things? Yeah, two, two main things. Number one is I plan what I'm going to do that day the night before. So again, intentional. Like I, I don't want to wake up and be like, what am I doing today? That would be a fear of mine because then I'm just going to be scrambling and that's when the distractions come into play. The other thing is, have you ever said to yourself, you know, I live and die by my calendar. If it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. It's like my mantra, yeah. Yeah. So I think that we have to be even smarter about how we use our calendars. And if it's just, you know, recording podcasts or, or doing a project or having a meeting, I don't think that's enough. I think we have to, like, I'll put on my calendar, you know, a 20-minute call with my parents. Like, I, I'm, I put everything on there because if, I, if the calendar is dictating my life, I want to also dictate that calendar, and I want it to not just include my professional life but my personal one too. Do you also schedule in, for example, um, <laughs> check the news on CNN or something like that? Do you give yourself little times of break times within your calendar when you schedule? Yes. That, those break times are usually for going to the gym, run, cook, so I cook every day working from home. Yeah. That's, a, that's a nice benefit. And then I also, my breaks are also connecting with like friends, family. That's cool. And yeah. you know, this, this goes back to something that we talked about on the show last season. I had Nir Eyal on, who I'm sure you know his work and, and know him. And his book, Indistractable, which I really, I thought was really awesome. Uh, he, he talks about the, the intentional scheduling. And one thing he does, for example, is he schedules time to deal with all like the emails that don't really matter. And so that's something I've adopted into my own life and trying to use, I will start, you know, when I have important tasks, I will make sure that I put them in the calendar. And I'll be honest, like I'm not that awesome at actually doing them at that time because something always comes up. And so it's a work in progress for me. But I do think that like, you know, scheduling in either time for specific tasks or, you know, just like free time to walk around the block and have a new idea um, is a powerful way to actually be, you know, like you said, intentional about your time. I really, I really like that suggestion. All right, Dan, I want to talk a little bit about your approach to life. And I have a question that I'm, I, I like to ask my guests. When it comes to getting the most out of life, what have you recently decided to either start or stop doing that's had the most impact? I think the thing that's made the most impact now is time spent alone, like really alone. Okay. Not with like a technology device because you're not alone with a technology device, even though you're physically there, your, your brain, your energy is trying to communicate or post on social media. And so I think actual time alone, people fear being alone. Like it's an actual fear. And so I think if you spend some time alone and even keep a journal, like I've started to keep a journal you can reflect on feelings, emotions, thoughts, you know, your past, your present, your future. And if you're not doing that, if you're not spending time alone, then you might go through the same cycle that you've always been in. Yeah, it's a really important point because I do think, especially in a place like New York, but anybody these days with technology, we, we're never alone. And there's that great book. I, I love uh, Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone. And Keith, Keith's a, a super nice guy. And I I, I think it's good to eat alone sometimes. And I actually like to eat alone sometimes and not with the TV on or go out to a restaurant, but just be somewhere on your own because you're right. You can take a little time to think through who you are, where you are, where you're going, what you're feeling in a way that you can feel when you're distracted. 
everyone says they're busy all the time. Everyone. It's almost like a badge of honor. And if you if you say, oh, I have so much free time, people start to question, like, are you okay? Is everything? <laughs> but in fact, actually having that free time is extremely important to be healthy. And taking vacations is a must, like we were saying earlier on. Like, not having your phone is a new vacation. So if you're always using your phone when you're on vacation, you're not physically in vacation mode. And you're not getting a break, so you come back to work, and then you have 400 emails, and then that starts to perpetuate and pre- perpetuate and... And it's a constant, it becomes this constant state of burnout. Yeah, and you're lonely. It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. Dan, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and finding the courage to miss out on the rest. What's your advice for someone who wants to do exactly that? From my life experience, my best overall advice is do as much as you can as early in your career and life as possible because then you become more self-aware, can make better long-term and short-term choices. So for me, there was enormous amounts of FOMO. I was trying to multitask all the time in my 20s, but now I know what I want to do and what I don't want to do, where to spend time, where to avoid. And now it's like when I do my goals every year, there are certain buckets. Got to hit the research bucket. Got to hit the content bucket. Like there's certain things I do and if it's not one of those or it's not a project or connection that would you know accelerate any of those then i decline because the biggest thing and you know you could say like in my early 20s oh you shouldn't have you know started a magazine you shouldn't have had a blog you shouldn't have had a million a book like all these things going on at once with a full-time job but i think that doing all that work especially when i was young and I had the energy gave me a sense of self and ability and experience so that that all factored in to my later life where I now have connected all the dots and can kind of frame my life and career in a way in which I know what I want to do and what I don't want to do, who I want to be around, who I don't want to be around. And I think you only learn that from experience. Experience is life's greatest teacher. And I'm also a lifelong learner. So I'm, I'm, even though I really want to do these type of projects with these type of companies, I'm also willing to adapt to change because I know change is constant and I don't know what the future exactly holds. I, you know, I can predict. I know humans and robots can be working together. We could talk about it all day long. But I, yeah, I think in, in today's world where the average lifespan of a learned skill is like four to five years, you have to be open to change. But also, you also have to know yourself well enough to know what part of that change you can kind of adapt to and take advantage of. So your book, Back to Human, is coming out in paperback, and people can find that uh, at their, you know, favorite bookstore or online. But if they want to, it's not, you know, you've just told us you're doing a lot of different things. So if people want to follow your work and your adventures, where should they do that? On LinkedIn, Workplace Intelligence Weekly is a weekly newsletter. I do my best content there every Monday. Uh, The podcast comes out every Monday. Instagram, I'm posting once a day, seven days a week. Address? Instagram it's address? It's just Dan Shaw Bell. Okay. Spell that. S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L. Okay, perfect. We were joking around because everyone messes it up. They always <laughs> do W-A. Schwabble. No, it's Shabelle, people. <laughs> Twitter? Twitter is Dan Shaw Bell. All right. Dan Shaw Bell, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I invited Dan Chabelle back to talk about what he's learned since coronavirus took over the workplace. Now, I'll say right up front, one of the downsides of working from home is sometimes you don't have a great internet connection, and Dan's connection wasn't perfect, but we made the most of it because I really wanted to hear what he had to say. So, Dan, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, and we did talk about coronavirus, but it seemed very far away at that time. And now, of course, both you and I are at home, self-isolating. You're up in the Boston area. I'm in New York City. And the things that you talk about in your book have become... I guess, more real than, than I think either of us could have expected at the time. So what have you learned over the last period of time since, since we all had to, you know, basically become remote workers? I learned that from a corporate perspective, some companies are flailing right now. They're scrambling. They didn't have remote work, you know, process and, and policies in place so that they're just kind of playing it by ear now. They're trying to figure it out on the spot. And I think that it's, you know, really been frustrating <laughs> if you're a worker at those, those companies. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to work from home. A lot of people, I, I've known a, a lot of my extroverted friends are very fearful of this. And I think it's going to hurt them, you know, psychologically to not be around people constantly. Um, so I, I think it's put everyone to the test in, in different ways. I think that the companies that are have strong policies like you know I've been talking to Dell recently and and you know they already had this all set up uh, where you know mostly technology companies whereas other companies are just not ready for this and so they're kind of lagging behind and then from an individual perspective uh, I think that managers for the first time are managing remote workers and I remember when I interviewed people for the book what was really interesting is those managers who had been re managing remote workers for a while had figured out strategies to make it work. Like everyone has to use video conferencing and have to turn the camera on. Like, uh, you know, remote workers get to lead meetings. So empowering the remote workers. So they put policies, procedures, and created habits with the remote workers and figured out how to make it work for them and their team. And I think now we're still, you know, it's only been maybe one or two weeks and a lot of people are still struggling because they haven't done this before. And it is actually a skill set. So I think that's one of the things that I talked about in my book and that, that is very clear now is managing people you don't see is a skill set and you don't learn it in college. So the person who's listening right now who says to themselves, oh my goodness, this guy understands me. He gets my struggle. What are the couple of pieces of advice that you could offer them right now that they could implement right away? Number one is you need to create a daily routine. 
So don't, you know, plan the next day, the night before, right? Know what you're going to be doing that next day. Otherwise you wake up and you're scrambling. You don't know what to do and you end up wasting a lot of time. And then at the end of the day, you feel like you haven't accomplished anything. Number two is over-communicate. So because people aren't seeing and hearing you from for a long period of time, you want to make sure that they feel that you're doing the work. You, you they, they feel like they can get in touch with you because then they trust you more and, and, and can depend on you. And that's really important for strong team relationships. Um, number three is you want to be able to break your day up so that you have enough breaks and that you have a structure. So, you know, for me, it's, I get all my writing done in the morning and then I start after lunch, I start doing more of the research and, uh, you know, other aspects of what I do. And I find that that works best for me. Whereas for many of you who are listening to this, that might not work best for you. So the only way to figure out what your routine should look like and then match your routine to your calendar is to test things out just to kind of, you know, work in, in a way that maybe you're used to or, or try to switch things up and then, and then over time, iterate your habits, iterate your calendar and, and, uh, and how you operate during the day. And I think that will make a big impact for you. Um, the other thing is have, have meetings that run every week or every few days. And it has to be the same day and time every week because that also creates a habit and it creates accountability. So if you have a meeting every Monday at eight or nine in the morning, people know that they have to get the work done so that following Monday, they have to, they, they're going to be reporting back on what they had to do. And I think, I think especially when you're not seeing people and you're not in a physical space with them, you know, the same expectations apply and, and, you know, you want, you want to make sure that the team and your manager or if you're the manager, that everyone's in sync, everyone knows what everyone else is doing. Because in a physical office, you know, it's more visible what people are doing because you can go walk a foot and ask them what they're doing. Whereas when, when there's social distancing, when people are working remote, you don't get that as much. So you, you almost have to like think about all the weaknesses of working remote and then find hacks so that you can make up for those. Dan Chabel, uh, I hope that you are doing well up in Boston. Looking forward to when we all can come out of our houses again and seeing you in person. But until then, take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. FOMO. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis and editing and post-production is by FOMO. Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend FOMO. it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can FOMO. find me at patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO.